I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello and welcome to the London Review Books podcast. I'm Joanna Leary, an editor at the LRB, and I'm joined today by Angie Malenko, who has a piece in the most recent issue of the paper on the work of Denise Riley. It's a review of Riley's selected poems, 1976 to 2016, and of her Brooklyn's essay, Time Lived Without Its Flow, both published by Bigdor. Angie, thank you so much for making the time to speak with me. The review covers a lot of ground. It's an overview, even a celebration of Riley's career. And at the centre of your essay, there's a wonderful analysis of Riley's most celebrated poem, A Part Song, which brought her work to mainstream attention when it was first published in the pages of the LRB in 2012. It went on to win the Ford Prize for Best Single Poem later that year. But for those still unfamiliar with Riley, a part song is a long elegy for her adult son, Jacob, who died from undiagnosed cardiomyopathy in 2008. We can speak about this poem in detail a little bit later, because I do, we probably both do, believe it's one of the most powerful elegies in the language. But it occurs to me that Riley's achievements as a poet, as a feminist, as a philosopher of language in a career that spans well over 40 years have sort of been eclipsed by the success of a part song and of Say Something Back, the 2016 collection of which part song would eventually become the centrepiece. So I wanted to begin by discussing some of Riley's earlier work. Angie, you mentioned to me recently that writing this piece reminded you of the influence that Riley had on your own work or has had on your own work. You call her our pre-eminent dialectician of vulnerability and scepticism. So when and how did you first encounter her? First of all, thank you for having me. Um, It's wonderful to be here and to talk about her work. I think I first encountered her through the book Mop Mop Georgette, the Reality Street editions. And at the time, I'd been reading a lot of second-generation New York school poets, you know, people like Bernadette Mayer, Alice Notley. And I found something really simpatico about Riley, something to do with her engagement with language, material language, and the idea that it was coming from somewhere else in a way, or as she says in her essays, it's language is impersonal. And so it's sort of an encounter between the person and the impersonal. And these were poems that left a lot to the imagination. One of the funny things I find about the book now is that at the time it seemed so 
freeing uh, these long lines that, you know, in my piece I call aria-like, full-throated arias. And yet they're very hard to pin down. (laughs) It's hard to pin down anything about her life from the poems. So they do sound a bit oracular at the same time that they're, they sound intimate. They sound like they're really talking to you, but they're not, shall we say, oversharing. So something about that combination, I think, I found intriguing. You begin the piece talking about identity. Riley, you say, argues with identities and identity in general. She is unhappy with them, casts them off, only to find them stuck on again in the morning. And you reference the introduction to impersonal passion. You've just mentioned language is impersonal, is working through and across us, is indifferent to us, yet in the same blow it constitutes the fibre of the personal. And you quote from a note on sex and the reclaiming of language, the first poem from her first book, Marxism for Infants, published in 1977. The work is example to write Sheen for that state to be a statement of fact only. In Riley's words, it's always a fragile balance to use the stuff of your life while refusing to shine as the guiding light of it. This tension, she says, between exposure and the wish not to be seen is held especially sharply by the lyric. So what are your thoughts on that boundary between what we've come to describe as lyric and its sort of dreaded bedfellow confessionalism? I was afraid you were going to ask me that. I I marked out this passage that she uh, writes in Impersonal Passion about frankness being a vice, especially the self-proclaimed kind, which today is the only incarnation of frankness. She says, nothing makes you flinch faster than a statement prefixed with to be frank. Hear that, and you know that some sort of sadism is about to be ushered in under the guise of the speaker's admirable manly forthrightness. The same with let's be blunt. Um, So I think she detects uh, a kind of, well, she says sadism, but it's also an aggression in confessionalism. Um, So where somebody is maybe performing vulnerability in the form of um, actually assaulting you with their confessions. And she says in her poem, you know, her uh, affections of the ear, or she quotes Lacan uh, to the effect that, you know, the, the ear is the only orifice you can't shut. And this idea, she says, my, I think this is from an interview, but my proffered self is always something of a dislocated eye. And I think that's quite a good description of it too, because they're both personal and impersonal poems. And that's what makes them so strange and so unique in a way. And, you know, she has this great line about, She'd never want to be the heroine of her own work. But I think if we look at even the opening poem and say something back, the speaker is male. I was thinking about my expectations when I first came to read that book. And my expectations, despite my better judgment, my expectations were that the book would be autobiographical. You know, it had this, it had a part song at its centre, it was an elegiac volume. And I wondered if casting that male voice in the opening of the poem was was almost a way of trying to make the reader think through what it meant, what it means to read autobiographically or to read into somebody's poems in an overly determined manner. I love that. Yes, I think that this goes back to some poems in her previous book, too, 
affections of the ear. You know, she casts herself as Echo, you know, counterpart to Narcissus. There's the uh, Castalian Spring, in which she goes to the Spring of the Muses near the Oracle of Delphi, which is another woman who, of course, as an oracle, doesn't speak for herself, but is a medium. Um, And so she sets us up uh, with this revelation that the poet is is a medium, you know, earlier in her in her work, and so then she comes to you know this um, you know the, this juncture in her life where she really does have to take on an Orphic per- persona, and she needs to draw on something larger than herself. You know, in our post enchantment times, we could say that's language. <laughs> Right, rather than the muses, or, but it amounts to the same thing. It's a springhead. It's a source. It's a source, you know, f- of language which we inherit, which isn't ours, doesn't belong to us. We didn't invent it. So we have to draw on something, and we draw on these words from the past. And it, they, they're not locked into identity. They're, you know, they're male, they're female. They're, you know, there's a reason we use the word fluid, um, and it also goes back to springs. Uh, Castalian Springs, the spring head of myth. I'm going to pluck a line that I particularly like from your review. God spares the magnanimity of poets comfortable in their own skin. You say that by the time Mop, 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 Georgette was published in 1993, Riley's poems had become passionate, sensuous and rhetorical, full-throated areas. And yet a tincture of doubt, vulnerability and irony keeps the work, work from tipping into self-regarding empowerment. Right, she she sort of makes fun of of us, you know, of us self conscious poets who prefer the written word to being in person or on camera. You know, you want to be the pure voice without being judged uh, for being, you know, not only you, your person, as in your body up there, your face, your age, everything, but um, but your historicity. You know, to be, you know, ahistorical and not tied to these particular historical identities that are you know, imposed on us. And then she has, it, going back to Castellian Spring, as I, as I always do, I'm afraid, um, she figures herself as a frog and, and, you know, has those lines about her skin being like the finest pickles in Whitechapel, that... Um, my long damp thighs now as studded and ridged as the best dill pickles in Whitechapel. So, you know, that sense of awkwardness um, is something that she sort of reasserts over and over again in her work. You know, she's deliberately setting herself up as awkward, recalcitrant, paradoxical, you know, as in real life, when a person does that, it sets you at ease, and it also allows her to, you know, be released from this sort of expectation that she's one is just simply fluent and comfortable all the time. So the title we've given to the piece on the page is Echo is a Fangirl. Now, of course, that's a little tongue-in-cheek. But it's also serious because Riley's poems are full of pop songs, slogans, what Elliot would call snatches of old tunes. Um, in the piece, you discuss... Affections of the Ear, in which she takes on the persona of Echo. I should explain myself. I sound derivative because I am. I am Echo, your reporter. 
of it, you say, makes echoes of us all, since poetry is nothing if not a derivation from the springhead of myth. And you speculate, and I think you're right, that Riley would agree with Pound's view that poetry begins to atrophy when it gets too far from music. You mention uh, her use of O Little Town of Bethlehem, but also say, you think about Lure from Lure 1963. So the poem borrows its title from Gillian Ayres, but the end notes at the back of this selected make clear that the final line, and you're not listening to a word I say, is pinched from It's in His Kiss, that pop song from the 60s, recorded by everybody, though for me, I just hear Cher because that was my era. When Riley's asked about this, about these borrowings, she's characteristically understated. They were in there, she says, almost uninvited, just traces of memory that walk through a sound. I was trying to see if I could rope in the power of the banally and heartbreakingly universal quality of those lines. Do you think that these, I'm going to call them earworms, are a sort of distancing device, a way of establishing common ground with the reader while also holding the reader at arm's length? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's it's tricky. You know, for one thing, if you're not of, you know, the writer's generation, you may not pick up on this these lyrics at all. And I had to be reminded of how many lyrics indeed she does quote by looking at those endnotes. Um, they're really a lot. And yet, you know, I didn't really pick up on many of them, not knowing that much about pop music from the 60s, for instance. And yet, the, of course, the words are banal enough to, to be fairly generic. I always tell my students, you know, what you hear when you listen to pop music are cliches, cliches, you know, uh, repurposed to the to the melody and they're simple words and they're cliches so they can stick in your head and, and be earworms. But poetry is an, another game altogether. It's about avoiding cliches. It's about finding a striking new combination of words to describe things. So I'm always, you know, putting those two things in binary form. But, you know, I think that something more like pointing is going on in Riley, where it's not that so much that she expects us to know these songs, but she's pointing to song itself as a concept, as a notion. Um, she's incorporating bits of song to draw attention to the fact that poetry isn't just speaking, isn't just a person talking, that it is a language closer to song than to prose, to ordinary prose. And it's a kind of sacramental quality. So again, this is a kind of echoing. It, we, one can't actually make music out of words. You know, if, or if one tries and then it's, you know, it, it's a kind of failure. It's not as good as the real thing, right? So, you know, you, you want words to come as close to music as possible, but you want to convey feeling, which can't be done by just by noises, turning language into noise. So you you try for mu musicality in the prosody, but you could also point to songs and point to this other genre as an, and incorporate it into yourself and say, this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm pointing at, this is what I'm gesturing toward. That, you know, enchanted, elevated, uh, transformative, uh, transcendent uh, feeling that music gives you. 
So you write in the piece about the distinction between poetry and prose, between Riley's elegiac poem apart song and its prose companion, Time Lived Without Its Flow, an essay on maternal grief and a reflection on what Riley refers to as arrested time, the experience of achronicity she experienced for almost three years after her son Jacob's death. A part song is first, but it borrows its title and partly its structure from a form of unaccompanied choral music. Maybe it would be useful to listen to Denise read some of this poem. We have a recording, which uh, you can find on the LRV website, of um, Denise reading a part song in its entirety from 2012. So let's listen to part of that now. You principle of song, what are you for now, perking up under any spasmodic light to trot out your shadowed warblings? Mince, slight pillar, and sleek down your furriness, slim as a whippy wire should be your hope, and ultra-flexible, flap thinly, sheet of beaten tin that won't affectionately plump up more cushioned and receptive lays. But little song, don't so instruct yourself, for none are hanging around to hear you. They have gone bustling or stumbling well away. What is the first duty of a mother to a child at least to keep the wretched thing alive. Band of fierce cicadas, stop this shrilling. My daughter lightly leaves our house. The thought rears up. Fix in your mind this maybe final glimpse of her. Yes, lightning could. I make this note of dread. I register it. Neither my note nor my critique of it will save us one iota. I know it. And... You write that one can appreciate the need, even the necessity of tonal restraint and time lived without its flow, where Riley takes the philosophical view. The essay Prose is rational for not being metered, a part song which is metered, measured, is closer to a naked cry. And I was struck by this because I sort of agreed, but then I also thought one could make the opposite claim, right? That the very arrangement of traditional verse forms, not that a part song always conforms to these, but that the arrangement of, of particular verse forms stops the disintegration into a naked cry, which we might think of as an unmediated response, crying as a, as a, an eruption. And so much elegiac poetry seems to take refuge in the notion of fixed structure, ritual, formality. And I'm not just thinking of Immoriam or Lycidas, but also of Dickinson, who Riley evokes in, yeah, in the essay as a sort of spirit guide. Um, yeah. After great pain, a formal feeling comes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, the feet mechanical go round. But maybe this brings us back around to the question of Riley's awkwardness. 
So as you say, metered and unmetered, rhymed and unrhymed, echoing Shakespeare and Milton in the part song is a bravura performance and simultaneously a record of defeat. And you quote Sinead Morrissey's comments on the verbs and phrases that are often left out of sentences. So that within sections of the poem and across it as a whole, actually, an impression of the difficulty inherent in the act of speech itself is being conveyed. Is it the case that poetry, particularly more experimental work, allows us the latitude to play around with the limitations of grammar, syntax and so on in a way that prose doesn't? You know, I think that the you're absolutely right that the that the scaffold of verse uh, contains, or as you said earlier, harnesses the naked crime. But I think it's because of that that you're allowed greater tonal range, right? So a part song has all of these different registers in it. So she can go from grief to scolding to the whole gamut. And even consider the the title is a, is a pun, a part song. Well, it's a contronym, one of my favorite words. Um, it means, it you know, it can mean opposite things, to be apart, uh, you know, apart from or apart to. And so she carries both of those um, meanings in that fragile title. And then she's allowed to mourn uh, in a way that I think the prose the prose book is 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 very it's philosophical it has you know a distance to it it's you know an attempt to to be objective and not to tip tip a very fragile balance i think um so t- so this is a, a matter of tone i think where it, as in prose it's not measured in um in feet but your tone must stay measured you must take the stoic point of view. And then in the poetry, because the actual syllables are measured, your tone can range, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You mentioned in the piece that she's written almost as many books on feminism, motherhood and linguistics as she has collections of verse. So maternity has always been one of her subjects. And it's sort of horribly ironic that a part song and time lived without its flow could almost be seen as the culmination of a career spent reflecting on motherhood or occasionally its refusal or the difficulties inherent in it. So, and we can, you know, we can trace these concerns back to her first collection, Marxism for Infants, in making a Liberty Bell. When her belly swells into an improbable curb, the she-husband will think, yes, it was me who caused that. And more generously, biology, you were wonderful. There's also something like a shortened set for Mop Mop Georgette, which deals with a failed abortion, later accomplished by hysterectomy. I know a child could have lived, that my body was caught, the bad sutures taken, loss and hope. And then, you know, in that same book, this sequence, Seven Strangely Exciting Lies, um, part of which thinks about motherhood, labour and abandonment. A kind of work, isn't it? So work, eat flies and love your children, although they too will leave you. They're always leaving you. You go on a monument. Is there a temptation to read these poems now as a sort of prehistory of a part song? I certainly found that uh, spookily to be the case when I read some of these earlier poems. 
You know, she says somewhere uh, in an interview not not too long ago, she says, mothers, sometimes I imagine that they are a whole sex unto themselves. And that's very interesting. I mean, she's, she's obviously been preoccupied with it. Um, I often think that she, in, you know, in her earlier work, she wants to rescue motherhood from capitalist production. <laughs> you know, it's an area of affect, you know, of the emotional life that um, is, you know, almost of religious importance. And then she has, you know, in her, in Mopchur Jet, she has this poem uh, that she writes from Samuel Palmer's diaries, and he lost a child. And, you know, and this is long before what happened to Jacob. And so there's this spooky thing that, you know, I think that poets do, where they have to, they have to live in an imaginative space that encompasses, you know, pain, the potentiality for pain, you know, whereas maybe most of the time we are supposed to suppress or repress knowledge of, you know, pain and mortality, or else we really couldn't get through the day. Poets, simply by, you know, living so much with books and with books from the past and with poets who are dead, and refiguring the language of the dead, um, we have to imagine, you know, death or live closer to death, I think, uh, without going mad ourselves. And so, you know, that will naturally extend, I think, to thinking about oneself as a mother. And of course, you know, living in a Christian or post-Christian culture. I mean, I grew up Catholic, so, you know, the Pieta. (laughs) (laughs) So, so you know, you the, the image of the Pieta is uh, is always sort of in your peripheral vision, as especially if, as the mother of of a boy or boys. So we're just going to take a short break, but we will be back shortly. Hello, I'm Thomas Jones, an editor and podcast presenter at the LRB, interrupting for a minute to tell you about a great new offer from the Week magazine. It can be hard to keep track of everything that's going on in the world, but the Week can help. Every week. The award-winning editorial team analyse more than 200 of the world's most trusted news sources to bring you comprehensive coverage of the last seven days from all sides of the argument. It isn't just the big events. Each issue delves into fascinating stories that didn't make the headlines, with reviews of new books, movies, music and exhibitions, science, sport and gossip. You can try your first six issues for free, and with free delivery too. Simply enter the special offer code at checkout. Visit theweek.co.uk forward slash offer and enter the offer code LONDON. That's theweek.co.uk forward slash offer and enter the offer code LONDON. Or just follow the link below this episode. The Week reads everything else so you don't have to. I just wanted to touch briefly on one of the essays, Linguistic Inhibition as a Form of Pregnancy. It seems to me that she's dealing with this sort of female, heavily gendered subject matter a lot of the time. But she wouldn't, I think, want this essay to be read as a commentary on contraception, about which it has a lot to say. And this is what makes her a unique sort of feminist, as you mentioned in the piece. She'd want it to be read as an essay on verbal hesitancy or embarrassment, So the awkward moment before one gets down to business and 
choosing the right instant to raise the question of contraception becomes a case study for an experience of acute verbal hesitancy, something most of us experience all of the time in a million different situations. It's just that she's chosen this scenario as a sort of illustration. And, you know, and it's a wonderful essay. You might, in fact, get pregnant out of politeness, she writes towards the beginning. Um, and what if you don't get around to saying in time, what do we do about contraception? It's important here to stress that she is describing consensual sex. But what she's really talking about, it seems to me, is the disruption of an assumed mood in the very act of vocalising something. And in this sort of imagined sex scene, she describes the boldness it takes or what it might cost to risk disintegrating the high emotion of a particularly steamy moment by saying, wait, what are you going to do? Well, you know, contraception. And of course, in her characteristically wry way, she ends the essay by declaring that you know, with luck, you might end up with a very nice baby, which owes its existence to the triumph of linguistic hesitancy. And I sort of love the way that it's both this essay on pregnancy, contraception, all of these things, but actually what you take away from it has more to do with philosophy of language than it has to do with the subject matter. Yeah, that that's why I love her so much. I think she is always putting so many things in play at once. And, you know, there, there are many paradoxes, you know, in what she does. Um, she's never ideological in the sense that she's going to, um, you know, She's going to be dogmatic. You know, she's she's playful. She says the pause called pregnant, the pregnant pause, is team is teeming with its barely restrained impulses to give birth to something irreversible. And then, you know, women are you know, we're the we're the ones with the more you know, stereotypically the the more delicate sensibilities where we have to be attuned to others' moods and, you know, not rock the boat, right? So, you know, or, or deflate the moment. as Yeah, and as, and as she says in the essay, somehow it always falls to the woman to ask the, the question. And, and then there's this nice joke at the end that, you know, conception, like humour, is a two-way street. And, of course, that's true, and we should all, as women and feminists be confident enough to be able to not experience that sort of hesitancy or, or awkwardness or whatever it is she's describing. But people do, and it's true. Well, it's existential, too, in that you... you well, she, what she's connecting here, too, in this essay is the fact that um, there's a, quote, threatened union of sperm and oven, ovum indifferent to the egg owner's romantic thoughts. So she's always aware, or a woman must always be aware, that underneath, you know, sort of the, the surface of things is an impersonal force called biology that is indifferent to your wishes and your your economic situation or anything like that. You know, and language, too, language, there are impersonal forces within language, and there's impersonal forces acting on your body. And then the intersection of these two <laughs> impersonal forces, sort of, you know, the, your person is sort of crucified on, on this intersection. And that's where the hesitancy comes from. And she makes the point that it's not necessarily about being 
you know, diffident or weak or any of those things, but just that it's very hard to think about biology and desire simultaneously. And that it, that it, you have, kind of have to do that, but it can slow you down. And then suddenly the moments pass and you're like, fuck. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It slows you down because you, on the one hand, you want to seize agency. And on the other hand, you know that there are impersonal forces that are trying to thwart your agency. And while you're processing all of this, you have to deal with, you know, your ardent partner. (laughs) (laughs) Who's presumably not worrying or thinking about these things. Exactly. Uh on this on, on this subject, I guess, too, you write in the review, a body that spawned another might have thought it had put an end to its aloneness. Now, my mother said almost exactly that to me after I got pregnant. What she actually said was, you'll never be alone again. And at the time, I thought this sounded stupid and incredibly wishy-washy. But then this strange thing happens and you do experience physically phenomenon of becoming a they so I guess rereading time lived without its flow in the aftermath of having a baby it made sense as it hadn't previously that there is something unique about the experience of losing a child to whom you've given birth which isn't to say that it's any more painful than losing anybody that one loves But I better understood, I think, the relation between maternal loss and the experience of arrested time that she describes in the book. I'll quote the passage to which I'm referring. If you had once sensed the time of your child as quietly uncoiling inside your own, then when that child is cut away by its death, your doubled inner time is also untimely ripped. That child you had alone when you were young yourself a child you grew up with, nested like a Russian doll whose shorter years sat within yours, gave you a time that was always layered. Then you held times in the plural. And I find that completely harrowing now. I mean, I read it and I liked it, you know, like first read it in my early 20s. And I thought, you know, I get this. This is interesting. This is smart. But it's also kind of completely true. And you get lines, you know, in in the poem, lines like, what is the first duty of a mother to a child? At least to keep the wretched thing alive. And that seemed perfect to me when I first read it in my early 20s. But I was thinking about it technically and about its kind of dark comedy. But then, of course, you actually have a child. And the whole thing is you know, revealed to you as as being completely true. What's the baby doing? Is she being normal? Is she breathing? What if she rolls over in her cot? Because now she can roll over and she dies of cot death. You know, all of these things. Am I doing enough to keep this wretched thing alive? And maybe that feeling isn't unique to having a newborn. Maybe that never goes away. And that's what it's like to be a mother. And And then you have these moments in the poem moments right the guilt moments a fat lot of good a mother the pointless alibi I didn't know referring to Jacob's condition which he wasn't aware of and then lines that aren't far from slapstick oh my dead son you daft bugger this is one blum mum I mean was that your experience of reading 
these books too. Yeah. I, you know, as a poet, I always think our medium is time as much as words. Um, so there is a kind of intellectual, you know, feeling of, of rightness. Or it's the right metaphor to think of these, you know, this child's time held within your time as being what pregnancy is. But then when you have the child and it's, it's really incarnated in a, you know, this metaphor is truly incarnated. And you go from, you know, making sure the infant doesn't die to making sure the toddler doesn't kill himself. And uh, you feel like you can't take your eyes off them. And then when you're, you can't do that anymore, when they really have to be out in the world, you um, are always waiting, you're waiting for them to call you and tell you something, some terrible news or waiting for somebody else to call you um, and tell you some terrible news. You know, if, if things, um, you know, if you're, if you haven't heard from them or, I mean, I have been in a situation where, you know, my, my son crashed his car and he called me, you know, with his voice shaking and, you know, with these prefatory words, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And <laughs> I immediately started screaming, you know, yeah. what happened? And, but, it, you know, and that was his own voice. So, um, that was, you know, just a little taste of what it would be like to um, to have one's waiting, f- you know, for one's child end in something unexpected. There is a moment in an interview from 2015 when I think she's sort of, she's always sort of eliding that you, know, you make the making of work and the making of the child or whatever. But she says, you know, all books go out unprotected into the world as they must you can't follow them and cluck after them and adjust their backpacks for them. They have to go alone. And that too seems to resonate with some of the things going on in, in the poem. That, do I feel guilty? Do I not feel guilty? To what degree am I responsible? And, you know, there's those scenes in which she's reading the autopsy, translating it from Spanish. And, you know, it's all, it's all just, it's, it's a lot and it's it's wonderful, but it's it's tough going. Yeah, that's what I say. It's it's a it's a very hard thing to read. In particular, the the passage that keeps me up at night is the part fifteen in uh, in a part song when she says, you know, she's contemplating suicide. The flaws in suicide are clear. Apart from causing bother to those alive who hold us dear, we could miss one another. We might be trapped eternally, oblivious to each other. One crying, where are you, my child? The other calling mother. There's nothing more harrowing to me than the thought that you live in this parallel universe for eternity, calling for each other and not being able to embrace you know so she she really goes to beyond the grave to the worst possible scenario she also she she makes a lot in the book of the suddenness of death and whether her experience of time would have been different had for instance her son been diagnosed with an illness of some sort and but but what really struck me, and maybe this is a Catholic thing, is the idea that she never sees the body after he leaves the house. So one of the strangest things for me when I moved to England, moved to this country, 
was the idea that people died and people didn't see the corpse. I, I couldn't imagine believing that somebody had died because I've seen, or, or anybody who's been you know, close to me who, who has died, I've seen, I've seen a body, I've spent time with it, I've sat up with it, I've, you know, we still wake people in the west of Ireland where I grew up. And and she mentions later on in the book something about this, like maybe it would have been better to to do that. And there's all this talk about the ashes, but that kind of suddenness and finality, it's it just seemed very alien to me and very different. And for me, and maybe as a sort of strange bias perspective or just a hangover from my Catholicism, terrible lapsed Catholic though I am, that it's that it's better to to see the body, to to be with it, however painful that experience might be, rather than to just have the person vanish out the door. All, all of this kind of this focus on the suddenness and on on an, an, an abrupt ending, as it were. Well, that's I, I suppose why words you know words aren't enough. Um, it's not enough to be told he's dead. She has to wait and wait and wait for him, and his continual non-return is what finally allows her to realize that he's gone. Um, I grew up with my mother had grown up in Brazil and had many stories of bodies being laid out in the living room or on the dining room table. There were many stories around death and corpses, you know, and especially the fear of being buried alive, of being merely sort of in a coma on the dining room table for a few days, and then you wake up in the grave. And there were stories around that, about coffins being opened and seeing fingernail scratch marks or fingernails broken from trying to... There's whole a whole lore of, of you know, death and the dead the world over that we hardly have any access to anymore. And in my family, we had Russian Orthodox funerals with open caskets. People would kiss mm. the corpse. And and the rituals were incredible. I mean, a, a Russian Orthodox mass with candles and incense is completely sung. It's, complete, it's, it's actually, I think, technically a part song where you have, you know, a singer and then singing the entire time with perhaps a, a small choir of people. And that's an extraordinary way to, you know, to put the dead to rest and to put yourself to rest, I suppose, or insofar as one is able. But, you know, I think, no, we generally have drifted away from these compulsory rituals, and I think we are the worst for it. But I think it's also a sim symptom of a greater breakdown in ritual and, you know, communal Communal, communal identity, I guess. I remember the first wake that I attended. I guess I would have been six or seven, and you sit in a ring around the corpse, and everybody's saying the Hail Mary or you're saying the Rosary. And after each prayer, somebody gets up and kisses the forehead of the dead man in the center of the room. And I remember saying to my mother, who's sitting beside me, kind of under the swell of the Hail Mary. I don't want to kiss him. I don't want to kiss him. I'm scared. And she couldn't, you know, because the priest does the first book of the prayer and then everyone joins in with a kind of course. But and so she couldn't speak until it was loud again. And then she was like, you have to kiss him. You have no choice. And then she sort of punched me in the thigh. Just you know, like you're next, get up now. 
And I remember having this fear, like I'm going to, and I was really little in this like coffin and just kind of leaning in and worry, being worried I was going to knock him over or something and kissing his head and coming back to the, to the seat. And the revelation I had was that actually my mom was a lot more frightening than the dead man. Um, <laughs> yes, she, she, she probably is. <laughs> the living are a threat. Um, let's talk about time because that is what these two books are about. Time and children and the way we think of children in terms of futurity. After Jacob's death, Riley slips into a state of echronicity. In such a state, she says, there are no tenses anymore. There is no narrative sequence, no future to speak of. Angie, you write of the analogy here with writing itself, the temporal markers, weeks, then months, then years, exactly as one measures an infant's progress, stand in for narrative, which is otherwise absent. Riley herself said you can't, it seems, take the slightest interest in the activity of writing unless you possess some feeling of futurity. In that tiny book, I started to guess aloud on paper about what the connection is between the stopping of time and the impossibility of narration. She's talking about the prose text, of course. It's strange, isn't it? We think of writing as expression, as some sort of, you know, unbidden uh, or compulsive expression on the part of the writer. And yet, just trying to imagine writing without a future or future readers, it suddenly becomes useless. So if you don't have the idea of flow, if you're not flowing in time, then language doesn't flow. It's almost like the baby inside the body, language is inside time. Yes, because it's, you know, writing is, or reading, it's a temporal art, right? You move from left to right. Um, it's, It's kind of linear in that way, as opposed to something like painting, which might be described as a static art in that you can take it all in in one moment. And so, you know, she, she talks a lot about narration and the inability to narrate because how can you narrate if you're if nothing is happening or, or you feel as though nothing is happening? Well, isn't it interesting that the two tropes that she goes back to over and over are music and, and um, water, springs? Those are the two things that flow and that have temporality. So it's almost this 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 constant through her work of time, language, and spring, springhead. You know the Castalian spring, the Narcissus's spring, and it's and it's music too, right? Because music is also temporal in the way that we're describing. So she she writes sound is sustained on the ear by its repetition and by the expectation that. If sequence were truly to fall apart from sound, then the hearer could no longer expect any future unrolling or could discern any principle of successive sounding. So, yes, I guess for a poet to whom flow is so important, this experience must have been terrifying. But perhaps also one could only experience what she experienced if one had that sort of attachment to temporality, if you know what I mean. It's, you know, you lose your child, you lose your other reason for living or being or... Poetry is part of your identity, right? You're, you're, one is a poet. And, uh, and to have that taken away is, you know, another 
terrifying thing to happen uh, in the wake of, you know, the worst thing to happen. So, you know, I think of the myth of Niobe, you know, who's turned to stone and the stone cries tears. Um, But in fact, she seems to have turned to stone. Indeed. She talks about attempting to find writers who can describe this state of arrested time. And the only one that she comes up with or or finds consolation in is Dickinson. She says she's someone who touches on quite extreme and almost unpalatable emotion. And she's also very good on time on this strange temporality of emotional states or on shock or the fall of light or a gesture. It's often some vivid arrested quality that her writing enacts. And the lines that she quotes in the book, you know, the sequence rabbles out of sound like balls upon the floor. And Riley says, I found it so welcoming and encouraging when I read it because one might think from the outside that somebody living in this condition was psychotic um, or were suffering from dissociation. And she, she says, you know, these conditions are understood as borderline pathologies. Do you see any affinity in her work between with her work in Dickinson's or? Well, it's, it's right in the poem that you quoted. Um, uh, the nerve sits ceremonious as tombs, the stiff heart question, was it he that bore and yeah. yesterday or centuries before? I think it's in that particular poem, which I've known since I was, you know, a kid, practically. I, I, I thought of that poem throughout reading her book. And it, curiously, it's not the poem that she quotes, right? She quotes mm. another poem from that, from, uh, of Dickinson's. What's curious is that, you know, Dickinson, who, you know, notoriously writes in fragments, who not, who doesn't always have a really, a real beginning, middle, end, um, yet she writes in quatrains largely, um, or, or in works that echo the, the ballad refrain, right? Yeah, so she's got the, the hymn meter behind what she's writing. Exactly. It's completely disjunctive. Yes, so which is another way. symptom, right, of, yeah. of, of of a kind of grief or or even we could go back to the word awkward, the awkwardness. The awkwardness, yeah, that, that's, that was what I, I was thinking about. And, you know, if you try sometimes to read a Dickinson poem aloud, it's in, just incredibly difficult to do. And you sort of think, why? And it's it's so awkward, it's so beautiful, but it's so difficult to know where to put the stresses. There's often a haltingness to it. It's a sort of a halting rhythm, you know, a shakish kind of shakiness in what is essentially a hymn meter. I think that, that's like your that the naked cry thing makes more sense in that context too, because it's it's a structure, but it's one that constantly seems on the verge of falling apart at the seams. That's it. That's it. And and Riley also touches on, you know, ballad the ballad structure as well. Um the ballad stanza not in you know, not in a sort of orthodox way, but here and there she delves into it, such as the, you know, the the poem that I quote that I like so much. Um Death makes dead metaphor revive. Which is what she's doing, this sort of talking with the dead and also not talking, almost being like Echo, being unable to find a respondent and yet desperately seeking out that kind of communication. 
Yeah, and it's there's a sense of again that halting rhythm that Dickinson has, uh, which is used uh, to good effect because she's talking about a, a rusted engine starting up again. So there's a kind of coughing quality to the to the pacing. An Orphic engine revs but floods, choked on its ardent weight. Disjointed anthems dip and bob down time's defrosted spate. Over its pools of greeny melt, the rearing ice will tilt. To make rhyme chime again with time, I sound a curious lilt. Mm. A curious lilt definitely describes the Dickinsonian poetic. I wanted to finish by reading um, just a quote from Riley and just by asking you if you think this applies to your own work, because I'm always sort of fascinated by how aware poets are or are not of what they're actually doing. This is, again, from an interview that Riley did in 1985, and she's talking about her process. If the work isn't very recalcitrant to me, and if it isn't running ahead of me all the time, then I know it's poor work. That's the trouble. In a sense, the poem, to be any good, has got to know more than I know. So I both don't know too much and don't want to know too much, because although I'm usually all for knowledge, in this particular instance, too much knowledge would be a very bad thing indeed. Do you you experience anything like this in writing your own poems, that in some way you need not to know what you're doing? Absolutely. And I think you know, a lot of what we've been talking about, I only know because I've had to submit to, I've had to submit to poetry or submit to language in order to write my poems. Um, if I went in with a program, then it, I wouldn't discover anything. I wouldn't write any lines that surprised me. I might as well just write an essay. And, I, you know, when I write an essay, I, I usually can see the structure unfold before me and I know how to get from A to Z. But with a poem, it's really one line at a time and one rhyme at a time. And that's partly why I like constraints more and more is the constraint gives me something to resist. And or no, it gives. It give, yeah. Push again. Push against. And um, and it's language. It, it's a force outside myself. Uh, so that's truly what I found so sympathetic about Riley was her vulnerability in allowing herself to approach language as a higher order or a, a higher power and how that sort of impersonal power interacts with her personal needs, you know, her instinct toward expression or song. That interested me very much, and it certainly helped me think through the ways that that I write, and it helped me clarify my convictions about when do I know I've written something, I don't know, good, or, you know, written something that's mine, or, you know, I think that's that's the more interesting thing when you've written something that you don't quite know how it got written and you know nobody else could have written it. She was one of the few people, I think, who really was forthright about that. 
without sounding, I suppose, vatic in a way that I really dislike, especially when, you know, sort of male poets are, act very priest-like in this, in this vatic tone, you know, and, and they're accessing something. Yes, they are accessing something, some higher power, but, you know, I, I, obviously I don't respond really well to, you know, priestly authority. Uh, she was able to do it in a way that was, that I think was more pagan, maybe. I mean, to reference the Castalian Spring, or the Delphic Oracle, or Echo, seemed to me to take it out of the realm of, of a priestly hierarchy and more in the realm of sort of the pantheistic myths. And that seemed more, much more useful, shall we say. That is so interesting. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with me. It's, um, I've really enjoyed the conversation and um, we're looking forward to having you back in the paper again very soon. Oh, great. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. You can read the latest issue of the LRB online now, which includes Angie's piece, along with James Butler on the Corbin Project, Neela Orr on a novel by Keely Reid, and Patricia Lockwood on living in Georgia during election season. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.